Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how the immigration debate and what lawmakers in Washington are able to accomplish could change the 2024 election for Joe Biden. And we head to northern Arizona, where a new federal grant could jumpstart trade. But first, Governor Katie Hobbs will deliver her second State of the State address this afternoon to a joint session of the legislature. It's part of today's kickoff of the 2024 session. Lawmakers and the governor reconvene at the Capitol, facing a roughly $400 million budget shortfall for the rest of the year. And about the same for the next one. They each, of course, also have many other priorities for the coming year, ranging from school vouchers to taxes to election law. For a preview of what to expect today and over the course of the next several months, my co-host Mark Brody spoke, spoke with Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Beginning with how much of what Governor Hobbs and GOP leaders hope to accomplish is reliant on finding solutions to the budget shortfalls they're facing. Well, it's a little bit of chicken and egg. I mean, on one hand, we're starting the year with $420 million in the red. And when I say the year, I mean what's left of the fiscal year, which ends June 30th. You clearly need to resolve that, and you need to resolve that fast, because if you need to cut $420 million over the course of six months, that's one thing. If you put it off and start making cuts in April or May, now you're talking some really deep cuts for a short period of time for some agencies. Right. So that clearly needs to be a priority. Now, theoretically speaking, these people can walk and chew gum at the same time. So there will be work on other issues there. Uh, folks are starting to lay out their agendas. Obviously, the governor wants a major overhaul of universal vouchers. Lawmakers are looking for other ways to cut government and then, of course, there's the usual garden variety of strange and unusual bills ranging from whether we're going to drug test lawmakers to whether we're going to prohibit the sale of laboratory grown meat. So a little bit of everything for everybody this year. As always. So how were you had the chance to, to sit down and speak with the governor uh, before uh, her state of the state later today, before the session begins? Did you get the sense that she has learned anything from her first year in office that might help her work with the legislature or, you know, get her priorities uh, done better than she, than what happened last year? Well, she learned something she should have known as a state lawmaker, which is there needs to be communication between the governor's office and lawmakers and particularly between the governor's office and members of her own party. And exhibit number one on that was the so-called tamale bill, the mm -hmm. issue of what can be grown, what can be made at home, what can be baked at home, and then sold on the street. The governor had apparently not communicated with a lot of folks that the bill by Travis Grantham was unacceptable. And that led to the fact that a lot of Democrats also voted for the bill. I mean, an overwhelming majority of lawmakers from both parties voted for the bill, which kind of meant a blindside when she vetoed it. And then she had to go ahead and say, oh, please, please don't make me the first override veto since 1980. And she got enough Democrats to say, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll play nice, but, you know, you need to work with us. 
I think some of that was her. I think some of that was a, a staff that was unfamiliar with the process or didn't understand the politics. She has a new chief of staff now. She has uh, a new communications person. So I think that's been worked out. Uh, the other part of it is I think she knows she needs to at least play nice with the Republicans. She has to deal with them as opposed to simply going in there and saying, you will do it my way. Last year, for example, she came in and said, you will repeal universal vouchers. Well, they gave her the proverbial two-word answer, the second word of which was you, the first which was not thank, and we saw what happened with that. She's coming with a much narrower plan this year. I think the results are going to be pretty much the same, but she has some carrots in there, things that maybe reasonable people can accept, like should people who are teaching in these private schools have to go through background checks and have to be fingerprinted. So I think she's recognized that it isn't necessary to come in there like gangbusters, that there are ways of doing things, yet still sticking to your political guns. Well, so Howie, the Tamale bill raises an interesting question and one that a lot of folks have been wondering about, which is the governor, of course, set a record for the number of vetoes last year. There's been a lot of debate and a lot of question about whether or not some of those same bills might find their way at the governor's desk again. What are you hearing about that? Oh, certainly some of them will. I think that there are people like Jake Hoffman who have points they want to make. Uh, Anthony Kern, uh, want to make some points, and they think that somehow they've won something if they can send the governor a bill and she can veto it. By the same token, you have people like Senate President Warren Peterson who says, look, what I've told my caucus is we've got the same people in the House and Senate, because there hasn't been an election in between, the same people on the governor's office. You know, why go through this? Why try to find a way just to annoy the governor to prove what? I mean, because you think it's somehow going to make good fundraising for you. Heck, it's probably good fundraising for her to say, look, I've once again beaten back the Republicans. Now, the Tamale bill is a perfect example. Travis Grantham said, I'm going to make some changes. Now, some of them are a little more cosmetic than substantive, but at least he's making an effort. And that at least provides a starting point. So we don't wind up with the same situation this year. Howie, last year, water and housing were two other issues that became big topics of discussion at the Capitol. Are you expecting that we're going to hear about those issues today and and throughout the rest of the session? Oh, definitely. And I think in some ways, housing is probably a higher priority because it affects more people. I mean, anybody who's been trying to buy a house, anybody who's been trying to get reasonable rent recognizes the situation. You know, you've got too many people looking for too too little supply. Now, the cause and effect of that, you know, depends on who you talk to. You know, there are people who say, well, that's because we've got too much local regulation. We have too much NIMBY zoning where folks don't want higher density housing in their neighborhood. You know, on the other hand, uh, there are folks who are saying, well, no, the, the problem is that we've got high interest rates, which we can't do anything about. We have uh, cost of homes at $500,000. And that maybe what we need to be doing is looking at ways of helping people. I think one of the things we'll see from the governor this morning uh, and and later today is going to be something perhaps for some help for home to- first time home buyers. You know, providing a little bit of of, of incentive there, uh, maybe buying down their mortgage and such. But water becomes a key part of that. Certainly in the parts of the valley here, where you know Buckeye and Queen Creek 
where they said because you don't have the 100-year water supply, you can't build. Right. Well, those are supposedly the more, quote-unquote, affordable areas, and I use that term very loosely because they're further out. And if you can't build there, then you're creating an issue. Now, they're not prepared to go back in and revamp the whole 100-year water supply in the 1980 groundwater code. But they're looking at a regulatory workaround. It was about the best way I can think of it to say, well, I'll tell you what, if you are in the process of getting access to alternate water supplies, uh, you know, maybe even through recycling, we will provide some interim path to allow you to start construction now. Now, the devil's in the details in that one. I'm not sure that anybody fully understands how that would work and how you're going to take advantage of it. But I think there's a, a belief that well, if there's a possibility to build 200,000 new units in these areas, maybe we should look at that. Sure. All right. Lots to keep our eyes on, of course. Throughout the session, the governor will give her State of the State speech scheduled for 2 o'clock this afternoon. Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services, thank you as always. You're welcome. Federal officials reopened the Lukeville port of entry on our southern border late last week. The move came a month after Customs and Border Protection closed the port and enraged leaders on both sides of the political aisle in Arizona. The closure cut off the main route between Arizona and Rocky Point, Arizona's beach as it's called, and it created economic waves with our largest trading partner. So now that the port is open, has Biden solved some of the key problems at the border? Not according to our next guest. Alvia Diaz is the editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic, and she joins us on Monday mornings. And this morning, she is joined by columnist Phil Boaz to talk more about it all. Good morning to you both. Good morning. So, Elvia, I want to start with you on the border. Was closing Lukeville a mistake, in your opinion, as so many people seem to agree it was? Well, yes, of course, and I'm not the only one saying it, that it was. You know, it illustrates the biggest problem that the White House has at the moment. I mean, for people like me, we are advocating to, yes, you know, try to fix the border but not close it. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, we were angry with the former president for essentially shutting down immigration at the at the US-Mexican border. But in this case, you know, it's not only to asylum seekers and migrants, you know, desperate to come to the country, but, you know, causing a major border crossing to legal immigration and to trade is it's a huge mistake. So you interviewed Marco Lopez about this, who is an interesting leader who has history both as mayor of Nogales and also in the Border Patrol administration himself, about his take on the border and what the Biden administration should do there. What did he have to say? What did you learn from that conversation? Well, I wanted to interview people like him because they're not just the anti-immigrant or anti-Trump or anti-Republicans, you know, but but people who are actually thinking co-headed about what can be done. And, you know, one of the issues that Arizona and other border states have been talking about is using the National Guard at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and he agrees to uh, to do that, to augment the security. But also, which is very interesting to me, he was also saying that, um, local authorities could help with some security at the border 
um, so the immigration officials can focus themselves to process the asylum seekers because remember that that's how we got to this point that, you know, the border was closed because there's so many immigrants showing up that immigration officials just couldn't handle the sheer number of them. And mm-hmm. so they wanted those resources to focus on processing them. So he said local resources, the sheriffs, police and what have you could help with some security. So immigration officials could focus just just on the migrants. But, you know, clearly he didn't have a black and white fix. No one does. Yeah, no one does. All right. So, Phil, let's turn to you then. You write about immigration a lot and you recently wrote about sort of the other side of this discussion, which which is what's happening in Washington when it comes to lawmakers tackling immigration reform, something they have failed to do for decades. And Arizona independent now Senator Kirsten Cinema is, of course, in the middle of these discussions. What are you watching for here? What's your take on this? Well, with uh, immigration reform, it, it has been a longstanding rule that you should never try to do this in an election year, that <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. And this year is different. And it's different because there's enormous pressure now on the Democratic administration to get a handle on the the tremendous flows of people that are coming over uh, the U.S.-Mexico border right now. This is a global problem, and it gets to the changing nature of immigration, which really began to change about 2010. It used to be that most of our immigrants coming up from the South were from Mexico. Many of them were seasonal workers, and they would return home. They would come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, that began to change, and we began to see people from the Northern Triangle, countries of Central America. And today, we're even see- we're seeing them and South Americans, we're seeing people from the Caribbean and China, North Africa, the Middle East, enormous numbers of migrants that are all part of the the push from the global south. And this is happening all all around the world. And so we're having to manage a, a problem that has changed in its nature. And there's tremendous pressure on the Democrats to do something. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all this is, lo and behold, Kirsten Sinema, yeah. our eccentric senator, in only her first term, who just seems to be always at the center of the important discussions in Washington, and now may be essential to help save Joe Biden from this problem. And a lot of Democratic mayors of big cities who are really unable to manage the the influx of, of uh, immigrants that are coming into their large cities like Chicago and Denver and Boston and New York. Yeah. Yeah. The landscape has shifted so much, both politically and just in the global pushes and pulls that are happening here, as you outlined. I want to ask about the politics at play there as well, right? Because what you're getting at is that the Democrats, who have been very upset with Kirsten Cinema for a long time now for leaving the party high and dry, essentially, really need her, you think? I think Kirsten Cinema is one of the great undertold stories in American politics. She's such an amazing story. You, you have this one-time Green Party Operation Pink radical who becomes a liberal then centrist Democrat. And here she is at the center of every important discussion in Washington, a, a key player in negotiations. She delivered the $1.2 trillion 
bipartisan infrastructure bill. She was essential to the breakthrough on guns, you know, the first substantial gun legislation in, in almost 30 years. And she does it by moving against the headwinds of all of this division and anger in the country. She's working for bipartisanship. She's a revolutionary in her own way, and she's absolutely hated for it. Uh, by what was her old party. She's now an independent. But it's just an amazing story that here she is after being shunned from the party. She's back in the center of negotiations trying to bring Republicans to the table in a way that would really help Democrats if they could move this off the table for the 2024 election. Right. So let's talk about that. Let me ask you, Alvia, about that that forward looking picture, right, which is that right now immigration is a big problem for Joe Biden heading into a 2024 election. Poll after poll is showing that. Do you think that if cinema, if Republicans and Democrats can come together and pass something substantial, which, as we mentioned, has not happened in decades in Washington and address immigration in a real way, do you think that will help Biden enough? No, I won't. And I, I disagree with Phil that, you know, this would be incredibly significant for, for Biden. And I also disagree that, that Christian Cinema is a one that is going to fix the border. She will not. Not this time and not in the near future, only because the talks that we're talking about, that she's talking about in Washington, are not really an immigration reform. Is the opposite, the total opposite, which is which is an unstarter for a lot of Democrats. You know, essentially what is at the table is some of the proposals from the hardline Republicans that are holding aid to Ukraine hostage in exchange for border security. So she's talking, not just her, but, you know, the, the talks that are happening in Washington is about mass deportations internally, not just at the border. You know, they're talking about um, essentially gutting the asylum system. They're also talking about expedited removal of everyone who shows up at the border. That's not immigration reform, mm-hmm. Lauren. That's essentially caving to some of the hardliners and in, in, uh, making it a lot more difficult for migrants to uh, ask asylum which they are entitled to do, not entitled to get it, but entitled to ask for that. So unfortunately, there's absolutely no talk about a massive immigration reform, which we need a a truly reform to the broken immigration system. So uh, I'm not as optimistic as Phil is. Let me ask you about that, Phil, before I let you both go, which is this idea that as Elvia is outlining there, like, If something happens on immigration and the Biden administration is able to take some credit for it, it will be inevitably something that is more conservative than what probably most Democrats would have envisioned, you know, even a couple of years ago, because the situation has changed so much. Are you going to create more political divides in that case? It's a great question. And I don't know. I I will just say this. I only know what I read and I read the Biden friendly New York Times, and it's the New York Times that is telling us that there is a possible deal on the table and that the White House is talking like it is ready to make some serious concessions on border reform. So there there is something at play and at work right now. I think the, the chances of this happening are small just because it is an election year and it's very difficult mm-hmm. to get things done in an election year. But there's a lot of anger coming from Democratic big cities right now. They're desperate for a solution. And Joe Biden, if you look at the collective polling on Biden, he is 30 points underwater 
when you look at the American people and their trust in him to manage the border, he has a real problem on his hands. And these pictures are not going to stop. They're going to continue through this election year. They're going to be trouble for him if they if he doesn't find some kind of a solution and show that he's taking action mm-hmm. on the border. All right, we'll leave it there for now. That is Phil Boaz, columnist for the Arizona Republic, joining editorial page editor Alvia Diaz this morning. Thank you both for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, gardening in Phoenix in the winter is a lot like gardening in the summer everywhere else. Less color in the winter. Um... But in the summer, it's just too hot for leafy greens um, and stuff. And so now is your time to kind of stock up. We'll get some tips and tricks from a Phoenix gardening guru. But first, the Federal Transportation Department has awarded nearly a million dollars to the I-40 Trade Port Corridor. It's an effort to bring manufacturing and other jobs to communities along the highway, including Kingman and Winslow, as well as Albuquerque, New Mexico. The I-40 Trade Port Corridor is one of 14 recipients of federal money under the Regional Infrastructure Accelerators Program. To get a sense of how the project could impact one of the cities involved, My co-host Mark Brody spoke earlier with Winslow Mayor Roberto Cano and asked how significant she thinks this corridor will be for her community. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be completely game changing for our community and the region and even nationally. Um, The the concept behind what this could do for our community specifically is is just something we had never dreamed of ever being like in this in this lifetime you know as a reality we had been kind of looked over for so many decades it's it's almost overwhelming to think of the possibilities and the opportunity that is due to come because of this this um concept and and you know just it's very preliminary right now but yeah when when it does come to fruition it'll be a life-changing event for everybody in this region in what ways do you think it'll be such a, a game changer, such a life changer for, for Winslow? Well, as far as um, jobs that had been lacking for several decades, um, it's going to be probably the major the major component. We had been a very prosperous city when first, you know, ever uh, incorporated and through like the early 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, through the 60s and like into the 70s when... Um, Route 66 was like the the mother road, the the you know one of the major modes of transportation and and vacationing and all those things. You know, it was Winslow was thriving. It was like a little metropolis city, and and the the creation of I forty really <laughs> was a detriment to our community and a lot of those thriving businesses that are in our local downtown, right right on Route 66, had suffered for many many decades, and so. The revitalization of something like this and and being able to be in our city, it's going to just kind of bring us back to that heyday of growth and opportunity. Yeah. Well, so what kinds of jobs are you most looking forward to? Like, What kinds of jobs would you expect to be created because of this? Well, with with, uh, this grant having come through, it's really just all preliminary and planning and really trying to figure out how... Winslow fits in this I-40 corridor, trade port corridor. And um, so Winslow's kind of like a clean blank slate right now where 
we have all of the major components you would need for something like this to be successful. We have a fantastic rail system with rail spurs. We have an airport that's completely underutilized. We have I-40, which is massive. We have lots of land and we have a very um, generous water supply. What, what Winslow's component is going to be is we're looking for industry that's going to be solutions to some of our, our energy problems and, and having like emphasis on green energy. When you talk about, you know, trying to attract green energy companies, things like that, does that mean that you're looking at the situation as maybe turning Winslow into more of a manufacturing situation as opposed to a, a warehouse logistics kind of kind of hub? Yes. So we, we think there's going to be a, a good combination of all, you know, we, we could host manufacturing, obviously, with like our airport and our, our rail and and the I-40 having trucks come in and out. Of course, warehousing would be ideal as well. But for industry, for new products and things like that, we are definitely looking towards like a greener, you know, those who are looking, you know, to, to start something new that, again, you know, we're wanting solutions for some of the problems in, in our country. And, you know, we're, we're, we're saying that Winslow is opening their arms for some of those concepts. Well, I'm curious, like, do you have the, the infrastructure? Do you have the workforce to, to have those kinds of companies relocating to Winslow at this moment? Well, we're, we are definitely counting on our, our uh, neighboring Native communities to, you know, to be a part of that um, workforce. And, and we, we realize that with some of this attraction of new industry, we are, we are going to have some new people coming to our city. We're going to have some growth. Um, I would imagine that. And in 10 years, we may, you know, potentially double in size, which, you know, kind of has been a long time coming. We've been Mm. we've been pretty consistent in our population for for a long time. And and even if we were to grow by 5000, that would really make a difference. Well, so you mentioned that this is all very preliminary, this first sort of batch of money coming in. So given sort of how optimistic you are, like what are the next steps and what kind of timeline might you be looking at to sort of realize some of this potential that you're talking about? So we are we are partnering and we have a, a memo of, of understanding with um, our partners, Kingman and Albuquerque being our in that trade port corridor. Mm-hmm. So we, we are definitely having to work really closely with, with um, their you know, powers that be in their administrations and things like that to um, understand which cities be important for what component of some of this um, concept, you know. And, and, and a lot of it is about the supply chain issues, bringing industry back to America, and how do we all come together as these major cities along I-40 to, you know, assist that, you know, what, who, who, you know, what location is going to be best suited for this X, Y, and Z is, is kind of what a lot of this, this planning grant is going to be for is, you know, what works for each one of us. Well, is it, is it the case that Kingman, Winslow and Albuquerque, like, are, are you, does it seem like you're all sort of situated for different things as opposed to maybe all of you competing for the same green energy manufacturing? Or or is there enough sort of difference between what the three of you have to offer that there's sort of enough to go around? Yes. Yes. So I, so I believe that, you know, with some of the, 
things that are already in place, let's say like in Kingman, knowing that they've already got certain certain things ready to go, they would be more suited for maybe like, you know, distribution or, or like warehouse type um part of it or, or, you know, it, and that's a, again, like really what this grant is for. We're, we're just trying to figure out who's best suited for what, but being that Winslow really hasn't had a lot of growth in that industry realm for many decades, we have like the wide open space to really become the, the location for new, new industries to come in. Anything that happens is, is going to be a positive for our community We're it's just welcomed and, and, our people are ready and hungry to, you know, have some, some opportunity come our way. So. Sure. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Mayor Roberta Cano of the city of Winslow. Mayor Cano, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. The International Court of Justice on Thursday will start a two-day hearing into South Africa's case alleging genocide by Israel in its ongoing war against Hamas in Gaza. For our weekly look at some of the biggest global stories in the coming days, my co-host Mark Brody spoke earlier via Skype with the BBC's Jonathan Fruin in London. And they started with what exactly the International Court of Justice is. Well, the International Court of Justice is the United Nations top court based in The Hague in the Netherlands, which rules on disputes between states. All members of the UN are automatically members of the ICJ. A state has to file a case with the court, which is comprised of 15 judges elected for a nine-year term by the General Assembly and the Security Council of the UN. Now, one part of the court's remit is to hear disputes regarding the 1948 Genocide Convention. Obviously, six million Jews were murdered by the Nazis in Europe during World War II, and afterwards, world leaders sought to avoid a repeat by adopting this convention. Israel and South Africa are among the 153 parties who've ratified it. Now, under the Genocide Convention, genocide is defined as an act committed with intent to destroy in whole or part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group involving killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring physical destruction or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Legal experts say that genocide is one of the hardest international crimes to prove. So what exactly then does South Africa's case say about Israel and how has Israel responded to it? Well, South Africa's 84-page filing, which was submitted at the end of December, says Israel's actions are, quote, genocidal in character because they're intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinians in Gaza. It argues that genocidal acts include killing Palestinians, causing serious mental and bodily harm, and collates a range of statements by Israeli officials that it says express genocidal intent. Hamas's health ministry in Gaza says more than 22,000 Palestinians are being killed in the conflict so far, mostly women and children. Now, in response, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is behaving with morality in its Gaza campaign. He argues that Hamas aimed to perpetrate genocide when it launched its deadly attacks against Israel on October the 7th last year, leaving around 1,200 Israelis dead. And an Israeli government spokesperson likened South Africa's case to a blood libel, a false allegation that Jews murdered Christians to use their blood in ancient rituals. This case will be heard on Thursday and Friday this week, and South Africa has asked the ICJ 
to take provisional or interim measures and wants the court to order Israel to stop all military action in Gaza. That's an urgent procedure that gets heard first, but it wouldn't lead to a finding of genocide at this stage. Experts say there's a low standard of proof for interim measures where the court is examining whether there's a chance of irreversible harm. Ukraine made a similar application after it was invaded by Russia in February 2022, and the ICJ ordered Russia to halt its military campaign a few weeks later, but Moscow ignored the ruling. Legal experts the BBC spoken to think the ICJ could give an initial judgment by the end of this month, but they say the process establishing whether genocide is occurring or not could take a long time. All right, so Jonathan, that is happening late this week. Then on Saturday, voters in Taiwan will go to the polls. That's a closely watched presidential election happening there. What are the key points to look out for in that race? Well, it's going to be a close-run thing, according to the latest opinion polls. There are three presidential candidates looking to succeed the current leader, Tsai Ing-wen, who can't stand again owing to term limits, having served two consecutive terms. Leading in the polls is William Lai from her Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. He's the current vice president. Relations with China, which claims self-governing Taiwan as a breakaway province, are always a key issue in Taiwanese voters' minds. And this year's poll comes at a time that Taiwan has emerged as a key flashpoint between the US and China. Mr. Lai is a staunch defender of the island's self-governing status, and China's state-run Global Times has even called for him to be prosecuted under Beijing's anti-secession laws. Uh, when he was President Tsai's premier, Mr. Lai described himself as, quote, a pragmatic worker for Taiwanese independence. But his opinion poll lead has recently narrowed to just 1% in one poll ahead of his main rival, Ko Yo Yi of the Kuomintang, or KMT. Now, control of Taiwan has switched between the KMT and DPP since the first presidential election back in 1996. But the now democratic KMT governed Taiwan as a dictatorship for decades after the party's leadership fled China's mainland in the 1940s. Mr. Ko is a former policeman who recently won re-election as the mayor of New Taipei City, and he has a reputation for efficiency. He's in favour of talks with the Communist Party in China with an aim of lowering tensions. The third candidate is Ko Wenzhou of the Taiwan People's Party. He's served two terms as mayor of Taiwan's capital, Taipei, and presents himself as a third choice for voters between the risk of provoking China with the DPP and potentially deferring to it with the KMT, as he sees it. All right. So that election, closely watched election coming up on Saturday. The following day on Sunday in Denmark, Crown Prince Frederick will ascend to the throne as king. That follows the unexpected announcement of his mother, Queen Margrethe's abdication on New Year's Eve. What's going on there? Well, that's right. Queen Margrethe II announced her surprise abdication in a New Year TV address. She said she would formally step down on the 14th of January, which is this coming Sunday, and marks 52 years to the day since she became queen. She's currently the world's only reigning queen and the longest serving current monarch in Europe. Queen Margrethe revealed that she came to the decision after a period of reflection following surgery on her back early last year. She's a popular figure in Denmark, and many Danes had expected her to remain on the throne until her death. She had not, however, been expected to become queen when she was born, but Danish law changed when she was 13, allowing women to take the throne. 
Unlike British royal tradition, there will be no formal crowning ceremony for Crown Prince Frederick, who will become King Frederick, Frederick X. Instead, his accession will simply be announced on the day. In recent years, Frederick's mother had introduced a range of reforms aimed at future-proofing Denmark's monarchy, which has no jurisdictional authority but remains symbolically important. Now, as of Sunday, it'll be up to the Crown Prince and Princess to shape the next chapter. All right. That is the BBC's Jonathan Fruin in London. Jonathan, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Winter in most of the country means cold, much too cold for much of anything to grow. But in Phoenix, winter looks a little different. Melissa Cruz Peoples is a gardener extraordinaire. She manages the garden at Arizona State University's Polytechnic Campus, helps the university with urban garden education and outreach, and she runs her own gardening business, teaching classes and workshops. When I visited visited Cruz Peoples' garden last January, it was rainy and cold for Phoenix, but unlike Unlike just about any place else in the country, her garden was overflowing with veggies. And then this is my uh, cauliflower. So you have this like clothespinned yeah. shut. The leaves are clothespinned over the yeah, over the vegetable. So, um, so doing that to cauliflower helps keep the color really good, so it doesn't get the sun on it. Um, so the sun kind of discolors it. But this one, you're like, it's already oh, discolored. Yeah. But it's actually a cheddar cauliflower, and so um, it's this yellow. Um, orange cheddar color. Way under there. Yeah. Oh, and look at all those big leaves around it. Yeah. That's, That's the size of a head. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, and and fresh, like, uh, cauliflower and broccoli just taste so much better because the sugars are still in the, in the plant. Um, and so fresh is good. So we're going to have this for dinner tonight. All right. Cruz Peoples tells me winter in the desert is, in fact, the best time to garden here. And filling up a basket with veggies with her in her garden, you can see why. I have some beautiful dinosaur kale. Then I have these curly kales. So we'll do kale chips with those. Mm, This is really pretty and huge. Exactly, yeah. And it'll kind of grow into a tree almost. So we got some kale. I'm going to check this as my... uh, I like to grow tomatoes in winter. They are sensitive to the frost, and so when it gets cold, I do have to cover them up. But I have these big beefsteaks on here. (laughs) So I'm surprised because tomatoes are supposed to be a summer plant here. They are, but Phoenix winter is about like summer elsewhere. (laughs) It kind of gives me a head start when it does warm up that the plants are huge and established, and I can get quite a bit. And I have been picking little red red ones off of this guy. Looks like I only have one today. All right, should we head to the back? basket already looks beautiful and yeah, full of goodness and in the winter it's a lot of greens <laughs> a lot of green and so uh, that's less color in the winter yeah, less color in the winter um but in the summer it's just too hot for leafy greens um and stuff and so now is your time to kind of stock up and some of this i i like to freeze especially if i use in soups or different um cook dishes it, the freezing it preserves pretty well I recognize this right off the bat. Eggplants. So this is frost damage that it's had on it. Um, Because I don't cover this. It's about four foot by three foot. It's really big. (laughs) It's a very big plant. But look at over here how many eggplants. And so I think actually this is the one I was eyeing um, this week. So it's funny. January is almost the best month for eggplant as far as productivity. (laughs) Um, And then more tomatoes, carrots, onions. Um, 
a lot of great uh, root crops do really well in the winter too. I like to say it's the time you can brag about your bees. And so um, B stands for brassicas, which is like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. R is root crops. Um, A is the alliums, garlic, onions. Uh, G is greens, all kinds of greens, spinach, kale, and then, of course, peas. That pea plant is is twice as tall as me. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So this one, I love these pea plants. They'll just keep going and going, and all those flowers will turn into a pea. How much of your garden here do you keep all year, and how much of it do you replant? Because I mean, some of these plants are just huge. Like this yes. is a—is this a broccoli? <laughs> yeah. So this is actually a Romanesco, and you peek oh, in there. Wow! Look at that. Barely. So if you've it's seen a huge plant. Yes, it is a big plant, and that's like Romanesco, or like a type of broccoli cauliflower that's pointy. It looks like Lisa Simpson's head, but it's a huge plant. So when that's done, I'll clear that out. And I'm a year-round gardener. I do let some areas go to rest a little bit or a plant um, in the heat of the summer, like a cover crop that just kind of covers the soil, keeps it active and alive. Um, But I add a lot of worm castings and compost. And so we have to, we're taking, 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 we have to feed, feed, feed the soil too. So um, I can show you my worm composting. Let's go see it. Yes. Oh, it's buried in the ground? Yeah, so I have it in the bed. Oh, wow. Um, So it's just kind of uh, some... Uh, chicken wire cage in a like a big cylinder, buried, and then, and then there's some worms in here. Oh yeah, there they are. Yeah. Oh, those are big worms. Yeah, big. They're red wigglers, so they're eating these strawberry scraps and things. And these actually, some of them are small. You can see the, yeah. So then they, what they do, is they breed, and so as they breed, they lay eggs and hatch more. And so as I spread this good stuff throughout my garden, it feeds it, but it also spreads the eggs, and we get more worms. So. Whenever I dig a hole, I want to see worms, and that's a sign of active soil um, things. So, yeah, there's lots of little babies in here. We talked in summer, I remember, about good soil and what it looks like and how you can tell what's good soil and how you kind of create it. I mean, so this is – is it easier in winter to keep that going because it's a little wetter and it doesn't dry out? Yeah, and so a lot of the microbes and fungi that sort of decompose soil stuff too, when it gets too hot, they can die. When it gets too dry, they also die. So it's a matter of water, air, and temperature that makes these things work um, and keep them alive. And that's why it's important if you kind of give up on a season, that you don't just like give up or stop watering or stop caring for the soil um, so that when you're ready to go back to gardening, um, it's alive and, re- and ready for you. That's actually a big point right there, right? Like, I don't think I would have ever thought of that. Like, even if you're not planting anything, don't yeah. let the dirt sort of die. Yeah, it's sort of the dirt die and dry out. So you could put some cardboard or tarps or things to keep the moisture in um, as well. But and that's why I encourage people to do cover cropping. So you can do that. A lot of farmers who do big summer crops do cover cropping in the winter just so that there's something actively growing. It covers the soil. So when it does rain like this, it's not just washing away and sort of damaging the soil. Um, And then when you're ready to plant again, you can just till all that green stuff in um, to the soil. And so that feeds it and gives it organic matter because all the worms, the microbes, they need something to eat. And so naturally our desert soils are really low in organic matter. There's not leaf debris. We don't have trees and forests. That, well, so there's nothing for them. So there's pretty low in microbes. But then we add that. We want to give them something to eat. They're hungry. Yeah. 
And so then they're, what they excrete um, is all the good stuff that's already taken something that's nutrients and made it in a form that the plants can actually suck it up. There's such a cycle to that. So much life. Yeah, exactly. It is a cycle. So then that's what, you know, all the things you, when I take that Romanesco out, I'm not going to eat those leaves that are four full. <laughs> but what I can do is compost those leaves sure. and sort of return them back and make make new soil and return that back. So that's kind of the beauty of it. It feels like everything kind of has a use and goes back into use yeah. in a new way. And so, you know, we can't just take, take, take. We have to give as well. And so, um, but I mean, look at that. Broccoli is like a five pound head of um, that's maybe, huge. Maybe that's exaggerating a little, but it's a huge head of broccoli. And so that had to come from somewhere to be built. And so it came from the soil itself. That's amazing. Okay, so we're in winter, but you said we are heading towards spring. Like pretty soon you're going to be thinking about spring. Yeah, so we, you know, often in January we get these beautiful 75 degree days and we think spring and summer's here. Yeah. But we always have like what's called a false spring, <laughs> nice and warm, but it's still like pretty cold at night and the days are still relatively short. Um, and so while well, much of the country, they're in the dead of winter, you know, until March, April, we come, kind of come out of that winter time um, in mid-February. And so that doesn't mean it's still not going to get a little cold sometimes, because I've had a frost on March 1st wow. once before. Um, but the days are longer, so we get more sunlight, and the soil starts to warm up more. Um, yeah, just more hours of sunlight to grow. And so Valentine's Day is kind of our spring um, here in Phoenix. I'll remember that. That's yeah, easy to remember. Exactly. But the reason why, you know, we're waiting for that spring is because summer comes even faster. And so summer is when we get the 105, you know, at nighttime it's 95 and just too hot. And so plants never get a break. And so the earlier we can plant for spring, just the more likelihood we can get some harvest. The last thing I want to ask you about in terms of winter gardening yeah. in Phoenix, I mean, I think you've given us a lot of good tips and tricks and like the what to plant and the when and the why. But I think what's so interesting about this is that it's so different. Like this is actually, yeah. as we talked about in the summer, sort of in the opposite way that it is for the rest of the country, the best time to harvest here. <laughs> exactly. So if you're a new gardener looking at the winter season, because we get more rainfall and it's that low and slow rain that really helps with things and just the sun isn't so intense and so things can kind of grow a little slower just because we don't have a lot of hours of sunlight but it's just so much easier oh i forgot about my what is that those are my watermelon radishes we're gonna eat one this wow, week Should I pick it? yeah let's yeah. get it um small these are watermelon radishes this is the kind that's pink in the middle. Yeah, so it's pink on the inside and green on the outside, and so it looks like a watermelon. So Look at um, that. That is beautiful. Yeah, so it's about the size of a baseball, um, which, <laughs> which is good. So it's a little big for a normal radish, but uh, really great for this. Right. Sorry. Easily distracted by all the stuff growing. <laughs> She's got much more to harvest. Melissa Cruz Peoples, thank you so much for having me out. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, that'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. 
That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.